So our topic today, Mowage, <laughs> or the Blessed Wages. You guys haven't seen Princess Bride, have you? How many of you guys have seen Princess Bride? Alright, go see Princess Bride, you guys. St. Paul, we are about to tackle what I would say is the most difficult topic uh, in St. Paul um, for modern Christians. Um, and the reason being that what he has to say about marriage is an affront to everything the world has to say about marriage. And unfortunately, um, even in some homilies and sermons in the church during weddings, we get an influence of certain modern types of thinking instead of basing our understanding simply upon the sacred scriptures and tradition. Okay? So, ladies, before I begin... We do not allow stoning in this room. <laughs> we are going to deal with some difficult passages in St. Paul, and I will do my best to make them understandable to you of why St. Paul has said what he has said. Okay? Remember, when we're reading the scriptures, it's not simply St. Paul talking. It is the word of God. And so as we're reading these things, we have to have that in mind. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you come across something that's difficult, something that's hard to understand, don't simply close it and say, well, that's Bible talk. We don't really, yeah, whatever, that was for a long time ago. Not at all. That word is, is true for us today. And so as a challenge to us, if it strikes you as strange, it strikes you as difficult, it may be God's way of challenging you to dive deeper into a subject that you, know, you don't know that much about, okay? And to dive deeper into the Word of God Himself, okay? The sacred scriptures are um, infinite, eternal in their value because it's not simply the written Word, but it's the person of Jesus Christ that we are hearing speak to us when we, when we read the sacred scriptures, okay? So blame it on God, not on me. Alright, so who is St. Paul? Let's start with a little quick introduction of St. Paul and then we'll get into the question of marriage. Okay? First of all, why do we need to find out who St. Paul is when we're trying to understand his teaching on marriage? Why? What's that? You want to know if he was married. The answer is no. <laughs> and he discouraged anyone else from it. <laughs> All right. Um, why would it be important? Well, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Okay. And so uh, he was kind of um, going against uh, the, the other preachers, wasn't he? I mean, he was sort of because they said only Jews could be uh, should be uh, become followers of Christ. Um, yeah, I mean, there was definitely that argument going on in St. Paul, at St. Paul's time, he definitely dealt with that argument. But on a broader scope, when you're opening up the scriptures to read St. Paul, why is it, or read his writings, why is it important to know who he is? I want to know if he's trustworthy. Okay, you want to know if he's trustworthy, but look, anytime you read anybody's writings, if I write to a letter and you have no idea who I am, you're going to have a hard time understanding why I'm writing what I'm writing. Okay, and how to properly understand. Now, I've used this example before. If I close my eyes and I say to you, I see fields of gold, of fields of absolute gold. What am I describing? Sunflowers. Or how this hills of gold. Wheat. Wheat fields. Yeah, whatever you are. 
argue. You have to know the context. Context, context, context. If you do not know the context of a writer, if you do not know the context of a writer of sacred scripture, especially, you're going to end up coming into all sorts of error. And I can't tell you how many times I've spoken with people that say, you know what? I love the Bible. I love Jesus, but I don't accept St. Paul. <laughs> okay? And the reason they reject St. Paul is context, context, context. Okay? Um, so, who was he? Who was he? A Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. And who were the Pharisees? That was his main identification, right? He'd say, who's Sabatino? Well, he's the Bible guy over at St. John's, right? Well, St. Paul was the Pharisee guy, right? They got entangled with the Christians. A lot of Pharisees did. He persecuted them. He persecuted them. Why? What were the Pharisees interested in? The law. Yeah, they were interested in the law. Why? It's over here. Okay. How about because they were serious about their faith? The Pharisees believed that the reason the Messiah had not come, the Jews were expecting the Messiah to come, the prophets had, had, had announced his coming, and yet they waited. They waited. Have you ever sat back and gone, I wonder why the second coming hasn't happened yet? Right? <laughs> Maybe it'll happen on January 20th. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah, hopefully on the 19th. <laughs> um, they were expecting the Messiah. And they believed that the reason that the Messiah had not come was simply because the people had not prepared themselves for his coming. And that he would not come until there was a place and a time and a people that he could come to. The Jews at the time of Christ, the time of St. Paul, had the, had the Romans ruling over them. Okay? And certain groups within the Jewish community had relationships with the Roman authorities. Okay? And in fact, they in some ways were submitting to the rule of the Romans instead of the rule and law of God. Okay, and they had that as a tension. And the Pharisees said, no, look, we must live out the law to its exact, to every sentence, every period, everything, every jot and tittle, right? That's why Christ said it, because when he was speaking to the Pharisees, this is what they were concerned about. And if they could get the, faith, the, the followers of God, if they could get the faithful Jews to really be faithful, to follow everything, in fact, to follow, they wanted, every... Jew to follow the purification rites that the priests would have followed in the temple. And they thought if they did that, they lived the life that was prescribed even for the priests, then they would be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. Okay? And that's why they were very interested in John the Baptist. John the Baptist down dunking people into water, doing purification type rites. And they're down there going, what are you doing? Who are you? Because they were expecting through the purification of the people for the Messiah to come. Okay? They were people that might gather on an otherwise beautiful Saturday morning when they could be sleeping in to gather in a room and sit for an hour to open up a book that's very difficult to understand. They were very much like us today. Okay? We would be considered the modern day Pharisees. So they get a bad rap because they're always walking around and challenging Jesus, our Messiah. They're always challenging him, but the reason they're challenging him is because they're concerned about the coming of the true Messiah. And if he is the true Messiah, he better prove it. 
And if he's not, then they have to get rid of him. Because as long as he's around and he's, just, and he's keeping the Jews from following the true faith, the Messiah is not going to come. Okay? Yes? Didn't they also expect, though, a king and someone coming in great glory? Which Christ what does the word Messiah mean? No. The anointed one. Okay? The anointed one. So in the anointed one in Israel, the anointed one was the king. Okay? So when we say they're expecting the Messiah, they're expecting the king. The question is, what kind of king were they expecting? Right? Alright. So, based upon that, who is St. Paul? Who is St. Paul? The first time we meet St. Paul in the scriptures is when? Good. Turn to Acts chapter 7. If you didn't bring your Bibles, friends, come on. We're going to a Bible study. <laughs> Acts chapter 7. Verse 57. Let's go back, actually, before that to... Um, where are we going to go? Verse 51. Let's go to verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, uh, did so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? This is Stephen speaking. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth against him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into the heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens are open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together upon him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul was consenting to his death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul laid waste to the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Okay, so we get an introduction to St. Paul, or Saul, as a persecutor of the Christians. And what I'm saying to you is when we're seeing that happening, don't see him as the modern-day terrorist, but simply a guy seeing heresy taking place in his midst and having absolutely no tolerance for it. Because as long as that heresy was taking place and being promulgated within the church... God's action of sending the Messiah would be stopped. Okay? I don't know if you know the story of um, St. Nicholas the Wonder Worker is uh, relevant today as we approach, approach uh, his feast day and Christmas, Santa Claus. Do you know that he was at the first council or the second council, the church council of Nicaea in 325? 
the first council being in after the apostles. And when Arius stood up and started preaching his heresy, denying the divinity of Christ, and he would not stop, finally Nicholas, who was an old bishop, got up and told him to shut his mouth and said, Stop your blasphemy and your heresy against God, and he wouldn't stop. So what did he do, Chris? Yeah, he punched him in the face and got arrested and thrown out of the council. All right, so the understanding of awesome. defending the faith. Yeah, pretty awesome. Nice old St. Nick, yeah. I like that. Nice old St. Nick. But our understanding, you know, today we're just so you know, careful and so cautious and so worried. In the early church, they understood that even one heresy being preached was a blasphemy in the face of God. And it had to be stopped. Okay? So when we look at St. Paul and his actions, rather than seeing him as a modern-day terrorist, we have to see him as something that was somebody that was absolutely devoted to the law, devoted to God. Okay? And so it's coming to extreme conclusions against the very people that he should, whose side he should have been on. Okay? So, Acts chapter 9, very shortly after that text, we continue. Chapter 9, verse 1, Carrie. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The way was the first identification of the followers of Christ. There's something called the way. That was it. Okay, go ahead. Now as he was going along... And approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Okay, so he has this first vision. Um, his, the story of his conversion. And there's two other places in the scripture where the story is told again. And we get a little bit more, it fleshes it out just a touch more in each of the texts. We need to look at these. The reason we need to get this, friends, is that we're not going to understand what St. Paul is writing about unless we understand what happened to St. Paul. What he was going through, what his background was as a Pharisee, and what happened at the moment of his conversion. Because those of us in the room that have gone through a conversion... I think you'll look back to one or two or three moments in your life that were life-changing, okay? That made a huge difference. And it was that moment or those moments which became extremely influential in the rest of your life. I still remember the night when I laid upon my bed praying to God that He would show me His way. And I believe it was that one prayer and that one moment that changed my life. I stand here in Virginia today versus in California, okay? Speaking of which, I never finished my example of the Golden Fields, which was simply that I am from California. So when I think of Golden Hills, I think of summertime and it's just yellow. But if you're from Virginia and you talk about the Golden Hills, what are you talking about? The fall, right? In the fall when the trees are all yellow. Okay, so anyways. So we have to understand who the man is and what happened to him in his conversion. This, this text is the most important that we just read. There's a key in that text that opens up the kind of the reason or the background to, I'd say, the majority of what St. Paul talks about, writes about. Something happened to him at that moment that then gave him an insight to understand the whole of the faith. Okay? 
So turn to Acts chapter uh, 26. <coughs> Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Verse 12. 26 verse 12. This is St. Paul's defense in front, in front of King Agrippa after he was, um, he was arrested. Okay, he was in prison. He was brought in front of King Agrippa and he gives his defense and explains to him what happened to him. Okay, Jennifer, verse 12, 26 verse 12. Thus I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen on and when he had fallen I'm sorry, and when we had fall, all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and bear witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles, to whom I send you to open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Okay, go back to verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and bear witness to the things in which you have seen me. That's going to be the key. Okay, the key is to go. He has one job given by Christ, and it is that he go and give and, and preach what he has seen. In what he has seen Christ. Right? The witness to the things in which you have seen me. That is St. Paul's job, and that is what he's going to do for the rest of his life. Okay? One more time, St. Paul talks about this conversion in 2 Corinthians. Okay? You go Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapter 12. Chapter 12. I'm sorry I don't have more Bibles because I end up giving them away or people borrow them and then they're all gone. First, or 2 Corinthians chapter 12. St. Paul here is an interesting thing. He turns it, he talks about himself, what is that, in the third person or whatever, self-reflection. So it's a little difficult, but, he, but most scholars agree that he is talking about himself here. Okay? He says, I must, um, I must boast. There is nothing to gain, be gained by it. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, speaking of himself, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told. He heard things which cannot be told, which man may not utter. What do we normally call those things in the church? There's things which are beyond... Yeah, the mysteries. The mysteries of the faith. We struggle to understand them. We write about them in the catechism, or we read about them in the catechism. We study them. 
But in the end, we stand before the mysteries of God. We do our best to understand them, but in the end, we always fall short. Okay? Which cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I wish to boast, I shall not be a fool. For I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And to keep me from being too elated, by an abundance of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated, and so forth. Some people say about that thorn in his flesh that it may have been a stigmata that was given to him. Okay? Possibly. Who knows? Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. In other words, when he beheld Christ... When he received his revelation, as with anybody who receives a revelation from God, suddenly earth becomes heaven. The place where you stand becomes paradise. He says, I was taken into the third heavens. I was taken to a place that was utterly undescribable. I saw things which I cannot even utter. I can't explain to you what I saw. Okay? When a man goes through a conversion like that, a life-changing moment, it's that moment which becomes the focal point of everything he lives his life for. And so it was that point in that revelation when St. Paul, when Saul, who was persecuting the church, beheld our Lord and he spoke to him that it changed everything about what he was doing. He did a 180 from persecuting the Christians to becoming the most... uh, what do you want to say? Pharisaical Christian there is, right? He was going to go march out instead of killing Christians. He was going to start taking down the Jews and the Gentiles word by word, taking out the sword of God to bring them to the true faith. Okay? So what was it that he saw? If we can figure out what it was that he saw, we're going to be well on our way to understanding his teachings. And yes, well on our way to understanding his most difficult teaching on marriage. Is that we're going to see it has everything to do with this. Okay, so back in, in, uh, in, in what was it, Acts chapter, um, what was that? First one is 9. 26, Acts chapter 26. What was the key I pointed out to you in Acts chapter 26? What was he supposed to go preach about? What was he being sent for? Yeah. But there's something more to it than that. Not just what he sees. In what he sees, who or what? Jesus yeah. In what I've shown you myself, in what revelation, in what way you've seen me, St. Paul. That's what I want you to go teach on. That's what I want you to go preach about. Okay? It's not just a vague, you know, go out and be a friend of Jesus. That's nice. But he's to specifically go and teach the things in which he saw our Lord. Go back then to his moment of conversion in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And see if there's not something that strikes you a little funny. Jennifer, you're not allowed to say anything. Jennifer, was I taught this same topic uh, about three weeks ago. So she's got all the, all the um, what was it, a month ago? Two months ago. Chapter 9, verse 1. I'll read it to you. And you tell me, is there anything in there that strikes you as strange? 
But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about. Notice he was not on a horse. <laughs> what art does to our scriptural interpretation, huh? All right. And he fell on the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said to him, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Okay? Anything? Why do you call him Lord? <coughs> he recognized something. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean well, first of all, the, okay, the term, the, the term being used there, Kyrios, is not something for us that specifically, that's Jesus, right? But for an early, for, for a Jew and early Christian, it's a much wider scope than that. But at the same time, you have a good point that he's already kind of beholding the vision and realizing whatever's going on here, I don't even know who you are, whoever you are. Right? You are the one that has dominion. The Lord has dominion. Okay? So, in some sense, he's already placed himself underneath him. Okay? But, but what else? What else? He's persecuting Jesus. He's What's strange about that? He doesn't know Jesus. He's persecuting Christians. Yeah! I mean, who is, has he been? Has he been? Did he go and crucify Jesus? We have no evidence that Saint Paul was there. We have no evidence that Saint Paul ever knew him while he was on this earth. Okay, so he says, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, "I'm Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me?" But who's Saul persecuting? The Christians. He's persecuting the followers of Jesus, not Jesus. Right? Mm -hmm. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. In fact, I would say to you that this is the revelation which St. Paul receives. That suddenly he realizes that he's not just persecuting followers of Jesus or Christians, but that when he's persecuting these people, He's persecuting Christ himself. And, and, and don't take this in the, you know, and that's nice biblical whatever, and, and that's nice for St. Paul to talk that way. Not at all. Jesus says, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you? Who are you? And suddenly he realizes by looking into the eyes of his Lord and Master, he realizes that something about these people he has been killing, the people he's been stoning and tracking down and persecuting, something is so different about them that it's not simply that they're followers of another Messiah come lately, but that they have been transformed truly and really into Christ himself. Why do you persecute me? He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. When we read St. Paul's writings about the body of Christ, they are, well, the, even the idea of the body of Christ is influenced from this moment. 
suddenly he realizes something has taken place on earth which is otherworldly. Something that he can't even utter. Something that's beyond our comprehension has taken place. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. When St. Paul talks about the beginning of our life in Christ, the moment of our baptism, what is, how, how does he describe it? Chapter 6, verse 1. Jennifer, go ahead. What shall we say then? Are we continuing sin that grace may be a that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay. Again, what is strange about? How does that, how does that text parallel what we just read in Acts, in Acts chapter, what, 7 or 8 there? Seven and eight. Since we actually died, we're buried with him. All right, we're buried with him, yeah. Acts chapter 9, for who we're being recorded. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. Yeah, we're buried with him, yes. And that, you're right, that sometimes is a strange idea for us that we don't really see baptism in that way. But there's something more. Yeah, we're, ba- we're buried with him, yeah. What else? We're transformed. All right, does it say we're transformed? No. Well, into the, into the mystery of Christ. Good. I would, specifically, one word you used, into. Notice, St. Paul doesn't say, we are baptized like Christ. Okay? We are following his example. Nothing more drives me more crazy when people talk about, well, that's how Jesus did it, so that's how we're supposed to do it. Or He gave us an example. Jesus never knew anything to give us an example. Jesus did with our humanity what we could not otherwise do on our own. And now it's our goal to be entered into him, be grafted onto him, to become a participant in who and what he is. Because in Christ, in Christ alone is salvation found. Notice his language. Verse 3. Do do you not know that all of us who have been baptized like Jesus, no, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. St. Paul sees baptism as a union with Jesus Christ. A total 100% union with Jesus Christ. So that he later says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ becomes his total life. And not because he likes Jesus and thinks he should do things like Jesus. But Jesus becomes the driving force in his life. It is the life of Christ which is now alive and no longer Saul. When people see St. Paul, they see Jesus Christ. When they hear St. Paul, they hear Jesus Christ. When he sits at a table, he is Jesus Christ present on earth. He is transformed into him. And we are transformed into him by baptism. So that we are no longer Sabatino or Carrie or Jennifer or Lewis or Helen. But we are Christians. And that is our 100% identification. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. St. Paul begins as he's writing about this mystery which he beholds. 
he begins to describe it in a certain way. He starts using examples from this world. And the reason he uses examples from this world is because he's standing before a great mystery, which he later calls it, and has no other way to describe it. How can he talk about the things of heaven to those that have not seen? And so he starts to use all sorts of things that are familiar to him. He says, how can I somehow relate this to the people? Okay? And he finds one example on this earth in creation that he's going to use for our identification with Christ and he's going to use as his understanding of marriage. Okay? And that is the idea of a body. The image of a body. He says, look, if you can understand a body and how a body works, I mean a body, a human body right here, and understand how it works, then I have a chance of explaining to you that great mystery which I beheld. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 Verse 12. For just as the body is one, notice he's saying, look, just like that, okay, take that as my example, and now let's start talking about this great mystery. Just like a body, just as a body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not... And he goes on, we'll go back to this section. Skip to verse 27. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ. Okay? So as he receives this vision and he begins to try to explain it, he says, look, if I'm persecuting Jesus... When I'm stoning Stephen, and I understand that not only is Stephen Jesus, but so is Cynthia, then how, how can I explain this? There's all of these different parts, and yet they're one in Christ. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in his church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, helpers, administrators, speakers, and ministers, and so forth. We don't need to look at the rest of this text because you know it very well. If you go back to verse 14, which we'll read one verse. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. How many times have you heard that in church? Right? And we're like, he keeps going on and on. If you're not an eye and an ear, if you're not a foot, you're this and that. You're like, all right, can we just get done with it? <laughs> in fact, when he's talking about this, he's talking about what he saw on the road to Damascus. He's talking about the greatest mystery which he's ever beheld. And that is that when we are entered into Christ through baptism, we all become parts of the body. And not as the world would like it today. As equal members, or I should say, we are equal members, but we all have different roles to play, different parts of the body to fulfill. The world would like us to all be equal and have all the same role. Right? Why? Why? Because in the world's perspective, any real power is only found when you are having the greatest authority and dictatorship and power over everyone else. So the goal is to be the top, right? To be the top dog and to be able to rule everyone else. And that's the only good. 
That's the only true good. But not for St. Paul. He sees the whole organic body as a necessary part, right? And he says, look, if I don't got my foot here, if I had to cut this foot off, what's going to happen? I'm not going to be able to walk. I don't be able to walk well, right? If I cut my arm off, what's going to happen to my hand? It's going to die. If I cut my head off, my body's going to die. If my body or my hand revolt against what my head is telling it, then what good is it? What good is the union of my head and body? When we, and look, St. Paul kind of takes this down to a super, a, a real natural level, okay? And we can do the same. And he says, look, or he didn't say this exactly, I'm saying this, but he says, you know, if my hand goes and reaches for this cup, Helen's coffee cup, right, and my and my head is telling it something different, or my brain is saying, don't do it, don't do it, my hand still goes and does it. And that's crazy. That doesn't happen, right? My head decides, or my, my intellect decides that I want coffee, and my will decides I want coffee, and I just go take her cup. Right? I don't, I don't want to get you. I go get a cup of coffee, don't we? We would never... In our right mind, imagine a body working in such a way that, that, that the intellect has to say, argue with that hand, stop doing that, don't do that, or go and get that. He says, no, I don't want to do it. No, that's not the way a body works. And that's why he uses this example. That a body works together so perfectly that there is never division. There is never argument. And any type of argument you do see within a body... In other words, I don't want my foot to get sick and fall off or whatever it is, get diseased, is simply because of a fall. It was never meant to be that way. Okay? All the parts of the body being necessary for the full health and functioning of the body. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I know you guys are saying, when's he going to talk about marriage? Trust me, we are talking about marriage, but we just have to apply the principles that we get here. Chapter 4. Verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. Um, verse, okay, yeah, and that's good. Notice how he picks up the text. Right from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we were just reading. He picks up the, the, the things. Some are teachers, some are prof, prophets, some are apostles. We just read that, right? In verse 27. Now look at verse 11 here. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Think he's talking about the same thing? Yes. <laughs> for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be tossed like children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. For whom the whole from whom the whole body, here's the key, joined and knit together by every joint 
with which it is supplied. Notice how he's using the body. He's looking at how a body works. He says, look, every joint supplies the other parts of the body. In other words, the elbow is necessary for the hand to work and function right. It doesn't make, make the elbow any greater part of the body or more of the body. Each part is a necessary part of the body, but some parts are dependent upon other parts. In fact, the whole body is dependent upon the head from which it is knit together, he says, or supplied, because Christ is the head. Okay? Joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, and then it's bodily growth and it builds itself in love. Colossians chapter 1. I'm not sure why I have this note here, but I do. So let's see what it says. Ah, yes, all my favorite. I love this. Protestants hate this text. (laughs) uh, Colossians, Colossians. It's hard to find. Go Ephesians, and then Philippians, and then Colossians. Colossians. Uh, Verse 21, actually. Verse 21. And you who once were estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless. Remember that phrase. In order to present you holy and blameless. And irreproachable before him. Provided that you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting and so on. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. What is, what's wrong with St. Paul? What is lacking in the sacrifice and afflictions of Christ? Is anything? Christ's sacrifice is perfect, isn't it? What's he talking about? He makes up for what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? What's he talking about, Jennifer? He's arrogant, that's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> What's he talking about? Yeah. What's lacking in the affliction of Christ, what's lacking in the body of Christ, what's lacking in Christ's sacrifice is my union with it. Jesus Christ came to save each one of us. And that's what's lacking in it. Until we are united to his sacrifice. And that's what St. Paul rejoices in. Because he is making up, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. In other words, when Christ or when St. Paul is afflicted in body, the other members of the body of Christ participate in his union with Christ's sacrifice. And the more St. Paul is united to Christ's sacrifice, the more each one of us is united to Christ's sacrifice. Because we all participate in what the whole of the body is doing. Does that make sense? All right. All right. Ephesians chapter 5. Real quick. 
Let's do that. We're going to take a, a 30 second break. And uh, Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at three texts real quick that are the most offensive texts of all. Let's do it. Come on, St. Paul. Verse 22. Verse 22, chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives. Uh oh. Don't read that. Don't read that. You're sitting there. I'm highlighting. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Who is the Lord? Gladys, who is the Lord? Jesus. Do you follow Jesus? Are you subject to him? Do you give your whole life to him? You try to? He Jesus is God. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to God. And the guys are going, yeah. You should be offended. First Timothy. We're going to come back. Don't worry. First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at these because this is the way a lot of people read St. Paul on marriage. Is they simply grab a verse and they go, this guy is a misogynist. He hates women and I hate him. First, first Timothy. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 11. The reason I'm looking at these is because they have to do with men and women's relationships, okay? Let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men. She is to keep silent. For Adam was born first, and even Adam was not deceived, but a woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet a woman will be saved through bearing children. Don't stone me yet. <laughs> that was First Timothy. Was that was First Timothy chapter two, verse eleven. First Corinthians. First Corinthians. Go backwards now. First Corinthians chapter eleven. Oh, that's not what I wanted. Hold on just a minute here. I'm going to get it for you. Chapter 14. Chapter 14. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silence in the churches, for they were not permitted, they're not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as even the law says. If there's anything they desire, verse, sorry, chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. Thank you. 35 or 33, really. 33. See, it splits the verse in half. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep signs in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate. As even the law says, if there is anything that is desired, know that the master husband is at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Who's offended? Come on, ladies. <laughs> I'm offended. If you're a reader, please. <laughs> all right, now, we just read those verse, those texts. We, those are all texts on marriage that we need to flesh out and look at a little closer as their context and why St. Paul is saying what he's saying. But we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and finish our next <laughs> section of 40 minutes or so and, and understand St. Paul marriage. So stand up at least, stretch your legs, get something to eat. Use the restroom. Um, and ladies, don't leave. <laughs> First 
change your stones. Chapter 14. First one is chapter 14. Yeah, 33 through. subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. As the church is subject to Christ, 
So let wives be subject and everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, for he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Notice, St. Paul has had this revelation on the way to Damascus. He has begun to write about that revelation in relationship to Christ and, and the church, saying that the church is his body, and all members of his body, fulfilling different functions. And he says, look, as I understand the mystery of marriage... I, he chooses to use the same image, the image of the body, and furthermore, the image of the body of Christ. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is a great mystery. And I mean in reference to Christ in the church. There it is. But no man could utter what I can't describe in the third heaven I was taken. This is a great mystery. And I mean in reference to Christ in the church. How could it be possible that we become participants in Christ himself? However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay. So, we, we've read the text, let's move on and keep these thoughts in, in, in our minds and see if there's other times which he says similar things, okay? Uh, in fact, if you've got a little piece of paper in your hand, put your hand there so you can easily come back to it in a future time. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, you're already there, I should have had you guys mark it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, this is one we read earlier. Chapter 2, verse 11, let a woman learn in silence. You guys there? No. Chapter 2, verse 11, 1 Timothy, not 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy. I know these epistles are hard to find. Okay. Okay. First one. Let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach our authority over men. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet the woman be saved to childbirth if she continues in faith, love, and holiness. Okay, fine. Put your hand there. Anything you saw between the two texts? <coughs> Anything he was making a reference to in the two texts? What's that? Yeah, more than that. He makes an explicit reference to something that is a background for what he's writing. The church. The what? Yeah, look at Ephesians 5. He says, you don't have to go there right now. I'll read to you. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. What's he quoting? Genesis. And look at 1 Timothy. He talks about this difficult passage. He says, he says for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he immediately returns to the Genesis text about the creation of the woman. Okay? And 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We didn't read this earlier, but we can do this section in the question and answer later on women's, why traditionally women wore veils in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And look at verse 8. <coughs> For man was not made from woman, 
But woman from man, neither was the one created. Neither was man created for woman, the one for What did he return to? Chapter 11, verse 8. What's he return to? The fall. Not even just the fall. He just turned, he goes back to Genesis. In every time St. Paul talks about marriage, he talks about Genesis chapter 2. So do you think it's important? <laughs> so what are we going to do, Bible study friends? Go to Genesis chapter 2 and see if we can figure out what he's talking about. First of all, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23... Yes, uh, Jennifer, go ahead and read that for us. Chapter 2, verse 23 and so forth. Then the man said, This at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man leaves his wife and his mother and cleaves... I'm sorry. <laughs> leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife. Okay, and they become yeah, one flesh. They become one No. Is there anything in this text about... A body, or a head, or participant in another person. St. Paul's using all this language, and he keeps quoting Genesis chapter 2. Does his language in the epistles apply at all to this Genesis text? In what way? Alright, the two shall become one flesh. Alright, good. What else? Woman from man. Okay, the woman comes from is explicitly what he quoted, right? For the woman came from the man. And where does she come from? What is she made from? His rib. And where is his rib? Yeah, by his heart. It's part of his body, isn't it? And she returns and they are cleaned back together. And, and unfortunately today, in our minds, we think, oh, they're brought back together. Just the same. They're just kind of... <laughs> No. The body was taken and the two were brought back together. The original union of man and woman. And they're brought back together as the rib returns to the side of Adam. Okay, we'll talk about that more in a second. Okay. Now, St. Paul has a great concern about what issue? About women doing what? Talking, yeah, lots of talking. I got a problem with talking too. What's so funny is fascination with women talking and opening their mouths. Is there anything that might be helpful in Genesis chapter two and chapter three? What happens in Genesis chapter three? The woman There happens to be, right in the text, he's quoting a woman who talks. Do you think it might be helpful? Yeah. Verse 23, chapter 2, verse 23. Go ahead, Jennifer. Keep reading. Just read the whole thing. Chapter 2, verse 23. We're going back and reading again. Yes. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other creature, wild creature that, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. 
But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you will eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Okay. Notice that at the very moment when it talks about the cleaving of the man and woman, that bringing them back together, Satan walks into the scene. And the moment when we would have expected for Adam and Eve to turn together, to, to in some sense, engage in that, in that conversation of love between a husband and a wife, we find the woman speaking with the serpent. And where is Adam? What was Adam's job in the garden? To guard and to, yeah, to keep. <coughs> He's nowhere to be found. Okay. St. Ephraim, reading this text, says, notice the serpent always turns things on their head. Is on, on their head. He always takes the truth about God and just flips them and makes them in reverse. Okay? So instead of going and conversing with, the ser- with, with Adam... Right? In debating with Adam, he debates with Eve. Okay? And notice what he says. He says, did God, says, uh, listen, did God say, you shall not eat of any of the trees of the garden? Had God said that? No. So he introduces the first lie. Okay? It's a little one. Did he say you shouldn't eat of any of the trees of the garden? In other words, that you have to starve. Okay? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die. This is a full frontal attack, right? And he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And what should Eve have said? Yes. What was that? Yes. Away from me, you will, be, you will be like yeah. Well, she's, he says, that you'll be like him. But they already were. Yeah. By the very words of the serpent, his lie is exposed. She should have said, what are you talking about? I am like God. I am made in his image and likeness. I am a participant in the divine nature. Okay? This is why the greatest mystery revealed to St. Paul was the mystery of our transformation in God. Because in the beginning, we were made to be participants in the life of God. And, Satanus, and the devil attacked that very issue. Okay? You will be like God. St. Ephraim goes further, and he says, Notice that the woman ate and then gave some to her husband. Seeking, this is what he says, Seeking to become head over her head and to become older in divinity in the presence of the one who is older than her in humanity. Okay? To gain authority and power over the one who loved her, over Adam. Okay? St. John Chrysostom says, What was the woman doing speaking to the serpent in the first place? She should have been conversing with the one for whom she had been made, with whom she shared all things on equal terms. 
Okay? It's at this moment the Catechism says that the divorce begins to take place, this breaking apart of Adam and Eve, the first divorce, when that union which should have been taken place was broken apart. And instead of Adam standing up and protecting his wife and refusing the advance of the serpent, he flees into the background and the woman takes his place and stands up as a representative of humanity and speaks for us and eats on her own and feeds the one who was the tender of the garden. It should have been Adam as the keeper of the garden that would have plucked the fruit and fed his wife and sustained her as life had come from him and been given to her. But instead, she becomes the one who plucks the fruit, the gardener. And feeds her husband. Everything turned on its head. And notice the curse that the woman receives. Verse 17, chapter 3, verse 17. Oh, no, no, not verse 17. No, 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 sorry. What am I looking for? 16. Yes, verse 16. And the woman, to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Notice what St. Paul said in 1 Timothy. How will a woman be saved? To a childbearing. So, look, do not, we're not going to get into that issue today. <laughs> but, but, when you're reading St. Paul and you're like, this guy's nuts. Realize that it's all based in chapter 2. And whatever, chapter 2, whatever he's saying has to do with the turn making right of the disorder which, this, which Satan and the devil introduced into mankind. He sees in marriage a restoration of the order which God created for the world and the order between man and woman. And notice he says, And yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. He shall rule over you. Now, this becomes the issue. He shall rule over you. And that what does that mean? What does that mean? It's part of the curse. It's part of the curse. Are you saying? Are you saying that his position as head and the position of the woman as the body was not something that God planned from the beginning? I say far from it. For St. Paul sees in marriage a restoration of the proper order. The rulership and the power that is introduced into mankind at this point is not the rulership of God. It's not the dominion of God. It's not the way God designed man and his position in relationship to his wife. It's the introduction of a disorder in the relationship. Okay? Who is the great ruler of creation? It is God. Am I right? And how does God rule creation? You see, we can use the word rulership in two different ways. The way rulership was had in the fall, or the way rulership was in the beginning, the way Christ came to restore it. God rules creation by setting it in its right order. God rules creation by sharing his own life with creation, by bringing it about, by making it be what it is. That's how God rules. It's this problem in Genesis chapter 3 that Christ came to change. It's that problem which Christ came 
to bring the right order back to creation. To reintroduce proper headship, proper authority, proper submission into the world. In this relationship of his image and likeness, that's what he came to restore. And that's why marriage for St. Paul is so important. So how does Christ rule? I could ask the same question, how does God rule in the beginning? How does Christ rule? Total gift of self. Yeah. What's the, what's the image that we see of this great gift of self? It's the greatest image of Christ's gift of himself to us. Yeah. When Christ rules, when he has authority on earth, he dies. When he's enthroned in power, where is he enthroned? On the cross. When he commands his followers... When he rules over his followers and commands them to act, what does he say? What is the one commandment of Christ? What's that? Follow me. Yeah, follow me and? Love as I love you. Yeah, love as I have loved you. In other words, to give his life for those that are following him. The total gift of self. Remember Christ said, No greater love hath any man than to lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater rulership as far as God is concerned. There is no greater authority. There is no greater ability which has been given to man than our ability to give our life for another. Why? Because that is exactly what God has been doing from all eternity, sharing his own life within the life of the Blessed Trinity. And that is the image and likeness that we are made in. The Father from all eternity has given his life to the Son. And the Son in return has given his life to the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's that reality, that life of love, which becomes our, as, as John Paul II loved to say, our innate vocation of every human being because we are made in the image and likeness of God. And it's that which Christ came to restore. That man might once again love, or we say rule, have dominion as God does, instead of how man does. St. Jerome says, in the church, he's, he's, laying, he's laying two things next to each other. The idea of power and rulership as the world sees it, and that as Christ, as God sees it. He says, in the church, leaders are servants. Let them imitate the apostles. The difference between secular rulers and Christian leaders is that the former love to order their subordinates, whereas the latter serve them. We are that much the greater if we are considered least of all. It is Christ who is the image, the model, or the reality into which our lives are to be plunged. In baptism, men and women are entered into Christ. We become Jesus Christ enfleshed on the earth. He said, I will remain with you always. So that as we who have been baptized into Christ go out into the world, it is Christ Jesus who goes out into the world. When Mother Teresa takes care of the poor, 
It is Jesus Christ who is taking care of the poor. Men and women having been baptized into Christ. St. Jacob of Seru says, Whoever saw a bridegroom sacrificed at the marriage supper, or a bride eating their betrothed, the Son of God has done a new thing in the world, which no man ever did but he alone. His body and his blood he has set forth at the feast before them that sit at table, that they may eat of him and live with him without end. Meat and drink is our Lord at his marriage supper. Blessed is he who has given us his body and blood, that in him we may delight. Who has ever seen, who of the world has ever seen a marriage where the husband is sacrificed at the moment of their union, who dies in order that the other might live? Who has ever beheld a mystery like that? At the very moment of the marriage, the, the husband is sacrificed. Or though she, as he says, the bridegroom is sacrificed. It is only in the mystery of Christ Jesus that that takes place. And it is that mystery, husbands and wives, men and women, that we are baptized into. That when we are baptized into Christ, our entire life becomes the life of sacrifice that others might live through us. That is the vocation of every Christian, man and woman. When St. Paul talks about marriage, he talks about the body of Christ. He talks about our entrance into Christ. And he says all sorts of things that the world cannot understand because they don't understand Jesus Christ. In marriage, ladies, when you are united to your husband, you are plunged into a mystery which is a mirror of the mystery of Christ and his church. So much so that when you serve your husband, you serve Jesus Christ. And what lady among you, what woman of the world would not dream of a man who will live his entire life as a sacrifice? In fact, at the moment of marriage, every man, every Christian man is called to be totally transformed into Christ in such a way that his vocation now is to die that's it. To die that his wife might live. That his entire life is for her. That we might no longer live for ourselves, but that Christ might live through us. And which woman of you, which woman of you would not follow your husband to the ends of the world if he was willing to do that for you? Further, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Where are you? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
right after Romans. Acts, Romans, first Corinthians, chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I commend you because you remember me in everything, maintaining the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. Verse, Wait, verse 1. Now on to verse 3. Oh, okay. Verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Oh, all of a sudden, St. Paul flips it around. Before he was talking about the husband as what? The head of his wife. But now he says, look, men, your head is Jesus Christ, which means that you are the body. Knit together in every one of your parts by Christ who is the head, who determines every action of your life. Whether your hand reaches out to get a cup of coffee, it is Christ who is your head. The head of every woman is her husband. But for St. Paul, who is the husband or who is the head? My wife's name is Linda. Who is her head? Christ. Am I her head? Christ. Am I her head? <laughs> For St. Paul, before he ever talks about the headship of the, of the husband, he talks about the headship of Christ. That I fulfill my vocation as the husband of my wife in as much as Christ is my head. That my identity is totally transformed into him. The head of every woman is her husband, and the head of Christ God. is God. Yeah. Do you see that Christ himself <clears throat> has fully submitted to the will of his Father? Turn to the Gospel of John real quick. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Verse 28. Chapter 8, verse 28. See you later, Cynthia. It's going to get better, trust me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'll wait for this last one. All right. <laughs> chapter 8, verse 28. John, chapter 8, verse 28. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak thus as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. And he has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Christ's life on earth is determined by his divinity. 100% his humanity submits to the authority of God. Totally. So that what Christ says is God speaking. If that were not the case... Jesus would not be our Savior. Because our salvation depends upon our, huma our humanity, humanity being totally transformed into God. Becoming totally submissive to His will. So that it is God Himself who becomes the active ingredient in our life, if you will. It is God's headship that totally determines our life as his body. And it was God's headship that totally determined Christ. 
When Christ speaks, it is not a man speaking, it is God speaking. You said, I'm sorry, your name? Darlis. Darlis said, but you are Jesus. You guys are thinking, okay, this guy's gone too far. That's what St. Paul understands, and that is the only possible way we can understand St. Paul's teaching on marriage. That is, he says, submit yourselves as to the Lord. It is because the husband has first submitted himself to Christ, so that you are not following man anymore, but Jesus Christ himself. You are not serving a man anymore, but Jesus Christ himself. In marriage, the greatest gift, ladies, that you have ever received takes place. And that is Jesus Christ wakes up and walks around with you every morning and day and night. Then you have an opportunity to love Jesus Christ in your husband. Don't worry, I'm getting to the men. when the alignment is out of practice. We'll get to that. That's a good question. Can we do that question and answer, though? What chapter and verse is John 828. 828. We're going to get to that. Okay. Gentlemen. What is our vocation? First of all, to totally, 100% submit to Christ. Ladies, if you're not married, find a Christian who is following Jesus Christ. And that is why the church for 2,000 years has said, if they're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to have problems. Don't do it. Because you're going to be serving, as you were asking, you're going to be serving someone other than Christ. And not just a box checker. <laughs> right. So first and foremost, our whole vocation must be total, 100% transformation into Jesus Christ. And in as much as we have sought that in our life, we are a viable candidate for marriage. Second of all, when we are called to die for our wife, when we are called to live our entire life for her, who are we living our life for? Jesus Christ. For ladies, you also are called to be transformed into Christ. Yes, in a different way, as a hand is different from an elbow on the body. But the man and the woman are both called to be transformed into Christ. The greatest gift that God has ever given a man in this world is the gift of his wife in marriage that he might give his life for her as Christ has given his life to the Father before his church. Two aspects of the truth of God that he not only gives his life to the Father but he also gives his life to us, his body. Okay? And when Christ does that, he gives himself, he gives himself over to God just as much as he gives himself to the Father. Because as he lowers himself and gives himself to us, he gives himself to the image of God, the body of Christ. Both 
realities, two realities of the mystery of Jesus Christ and his service and his gift of sacrifice. All dependent upon our transformation into him. Okay? Look real quick at Ephesians chapter 5. I know I'm now one minute over, but uh, if you need to go, go. Otherwise, we are definitely in the concluding moments here. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5. If you do need to go, feel free. I'm not going to hold you. Let's read this, guys, now with, with St. Paul's understanding in place. Verse 21, chapter 5, verse 20. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, I skipped in the first time I read it, that verse. Verse 21. Be subject to one another as to Christ. Because as the husband gives himself and his life to his bride, it is a form of submission. It is a form of total giving of self, of placing oneself at the total service of the other. It's a form of submission. Submit yourselves to one another as to Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its savior. Does the husband have some role in the salvation of his wife? Yes. yes. As the church is subject to Christ, so that wives be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Does the woman have some role in the salvation of the man? Yes. yes. Inasmuch as he fails to do what Christ does, he is not to have salvation. Having cleansed her by the washing of the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Hello, Adam. That's what you were supposed to do. Even so, husbands should love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife, give himself to his wife, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay? If you need to go, 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 go. Feel free. Okay. Yeah, it's all right. Just thinking if I need to deal with... Uh... Let's look back at Colossians. Let's conclude with Colossians, and then we'll, we'll take questions afterwards. Colossians chapter 3. Did we read this before? Chapter 3, verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 25. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, immortality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetous idolatry, on account of the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked, where you lived in them. But now put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, foul talk in your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old nature with its practices, and you have put on a new nature which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there cannot be Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, loneliness, meekness, forbearing one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you must forget, so must you forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the giving of oneself to another. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks- thankfulness in your hearts of God, in the hearts of God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, be subject to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Do not do with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, work heartily as serving the Lord and not men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. For you are serving Christ Jesus. Okay? I know I'm over time, so why don't we take a break there for two minutes. Those that need to go, go. Otherwise, I will stay around and deal with why he says, Women, don't talk. Go ahead, stand up, stretch your legs. If you're not going to go, at least stretch your legs. Can you open the door for a second? What's that? Knowledge. Yeah. 
It's a little bit late for us, isn't it? I'm just going to go ahead and quickly deal with this, this point of um, women stay silent, especially in church. Don't want to talk, don't have authority on men, don't teach, and so forth. In the relationship which St. Paul sees in the body of Christ, he sees the husband as the head and the wife as the body. Each one of us having particular roles within the union that takes place. Just as he sees the hand and the foot and the whatever in the body of Christ, so he sees the marital union, not as the world sees it on one plane, but as an organic whole, a whole body. The husband fulfilling the role as head and the wife fulfilling the role as body. And you say, well, but that's not fair because then you got rulership and authority. No! That's the way the world sees rulership and authority. That's not true rulership and authority. Okay? That's not true headship. Now, he goes, he sees this explicitly as a head and body relationship. Okay? As John Paul II loved to say, because the problem with the, the body versus the head and authority, he says, he says um, that the man is. What is uh, Yeah, the man is the head and the wife is the heart. Okay? Two aspects that are necessary for the full functioning of the body. And the ladies are like, isn't that nice? <laughs> yeah, it is nice because in the body, you say, what is the what function does the body fulfill? Without the body, the head is rolling on the ground and can do nothing. If the head doesn't have the support of the body and the heart, it will die. <laughs> Likewise, you cut the head off and the body doesn't know where to go. It's like the mountain pythons. Okay? <laughs> Alright. Furthermore, he talks about women talking. He says, don't do it. Well, he says, don't do it in certain situations. Okay? Why does he say that? Where's the mouth? And the head. And the man is the head, fulfilling that function. And he must fulfill that function. And inasmuch as he doesn't fulfill that function, we've got to fall all over again. Now, I'm going to say that St. Paul doesn't believe women should never talk. But that read in their context, and you guys could do this at home, read in their context, in their proper understanding, he believes that a woman must speak, but only speak in as much as she is united to her head and speaking and opening her mouth and what comes out of it is what her head is saying. And the man must never talk and must be silent in as much as he is submitted to Christ so that when he opens his mouth, the only thing that comes out 
is Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus said in chapter 8 of John, I say nothing of my own accord. It is God the Father who speaks through me. I say nothing. And when I open my mouth, it is God speaking. And when that happens, and the man is baptized into Jesus Christ, and he opens his mouth, and God speaks, and the woman is entered into her husband in the sacrament of marriage, and she opens her mouth, and it is God speaks. Is God speaking? My, my wife asked me the other day, she says, I was talking about deacons in our church, the parish that I go to, the Melkite Church. We have we just ordained another a subdeacon. We've got four deacons and a subdeacon. We've got like vocations coming out of our ears. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, it's two the deacons really need to be going. The one area they could really help and help father is going to the hospitals in non-emergency situations, in situations of the birth of a child, things like that, and blessing the blessing the the because in our right in the Melkite Church, the priests go out and they give in the hospital blessing to the wife and the new child and all of that, okay? And she says to me, well, yeah, but can a deacon really bless? And I said, honey, I can bless. <laughs> but only in my proper spot within the body of Christ. I can bless you, and I can bless my children, because this is the dominion or the realm that I have rulership in its proper sense over. Okay? But inasmuch as I am not in my proper place within the body, or inasmuch as my head is present, then my blessing has nothing at all. It doesn't do anything. It's not a blessing. So inasmuch as we are an extension of the body of Christ, then we are able to fulfill what Christ is and who Christ is to the people in our realm. So yes, I bless the food at home. And when I'm not there, my wife blesses the food as head over the children. (coughs) And I hope to God someday when my children are playing in the field or out in the whatever, and they have a friend that is not a Christian, that they will be Jesus Christ to that person, the extension of the body of Christ incarnate on earth. That was the plan of God in the beginning, and that's the plan that God restored in Jesus Christ. Okay? So can a wife, can a woman speak? Yes! In her function within the body of Christ. The church traditionally has always upheld women singing in the church. Always. Okay? But when it comes time for teaching and authority within the church, if the husband is present, he does so. If the priest is present, he does so. If the bishop is present, he does so. When the bishop is in the church, it is the bishop who teaches. And I stand with the rest of the body of Christ as the body, receiving the gift of the head of the bishop. And when Jesus Christ returns, I'm here to tell you that every single bishop is finally going to close their mouth. It's a joke. <laughs> but it will not be the position of the bishop to teach and to speak. Or I should say it will be, but only as an extension of Jesus Christ in their proper place. What St. Paul is fighting against and dealing with is in the church, this tension over who is to teach and who is to speak and who is to have authority. And I'll use one example, which is the most extreme one in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 
verse 34. Chapter 14, verse 34. I think this will help maybe tie it all together, I hope. Verse 34. The women, the women should keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate. As even the law says, if there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. Why? Why does St. Paul care so much about that? Why do you think? Go ask. If you don't know something, don't do it here. You go home, close that door, and then ask your husband to figure it out. Why? Because your husband should have taught you to begin with. Teach in unity with Christ. Yes, but this is, gets yeah. most of the way there. It, because if you don't know something within the full revelation of the body of Christ functioning in the church, in the liturgy, it's where St. Paul says, look, this thing pumps and functioning when the liturgy is taking place. If the wife does not know something that her husband knows, St. Paul sees division. And he cannot have division in the body of Christ. Because when there's division in the body of Christ, the fall takes place again. You go figure it out in private. And next time you come into public, you better be unified. To be of one mind and of one heart. It's not because he hates women. It's just because he thinks they're stupid. It's because he wants them to be fully united to their husband. Okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you're taking notes, St. Paul says, Ladies, when you, when you prophesy, put a veil on your head. When you prophesy in the church. Does prophesying have to do with opening your mouth and speaking? Yes. yes, it does. In Titus, if you're taking notes, chapter 2, verse 3, it says, The older women should go and teach the younger women. Does teaching have to do with opening your mouth and speaking? Yes. St. Paul seems to contradict himself in these two passages, but he's not. Because in both passages, he is insistent that the position of the woman opening her mouth and speaking or teaching is in its proper place within the body, having authority and rulership over her particular realm. Or, as 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, put the veil over your head as a sign of your union with your husband. So that when you open your mouth and teach, it is clear to all of the faithful when you prophesy that it is Jesus Christ who is speaking through your husband and through you so that it is God who is prophesying in the church and not man. Okay? I'll leave that a little vague. Why does he want a veil on their head? Because if you guys have questions, I'd be happy to talk about that. But it has to do with what the early Christian and Jewish saw as a symbol of the veil. Okay? All right. That's all I had to say. I hope we got most of the way there of not hating St. Paul. St. <laughs> Paul loves women. Okay? Okay, you need to go, go. Any questions you have, go. The symbol of the veil. Okay. Yeah, if you need to go, go. The reason why traditionally women put veils on their heads in churches or uh, the Jews also veiled their women was because of the union of the body and the head. If you read in in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, or 2 Corinthians chapter 12, what did I give you guys earlier? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. No. No, it's not. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about the body. 
He says certain parts are veiled or covered because of their sacredness, right? Saint in church. Saint Paul sees the husband standing in church for the crucifix and his wife standing next to him. This is the way the Jews saw it. That when the woman is united in marriage to her husband, he takes his cloak, his actual practice of the Jews, and he would throw his cloak over her. So that what do you see? One, one head one. and one body. If you read the book of Ruth, I highly recommend you read the book of Ruth. Because when, when, um, when uh, Ruth wanted, went to Boaz in the field to, sh to show him that she was next of kin and that he should be marrying her, what did she do? She went down. He was asleep on the floor of the field after they had done all the work. She laid down on the ground. He was asleep. And she took his cloak and put it over her head. And he woke up and he says, what are you doing? And, and then she, he says, what you have asked today, I will do. She never asks a question. But it was the symbol of putting her, his cloak over her head that showed that she was to be entered into his body. That was the perspective of the Jews because of Genesis chapter 3, that the woman was taken from his side and now returns. And so it's a sign of that in the church where the body of Christ is fully functioning. Traditionally, the woman veils her head to show that she has been entered into the side of her husband, that she has become the body and he is the head. Okay? If you look at there's a good example of that, look at a, at a, at a picture of the Virgin Mary. Okay, we have a picture of the Virgin Mary in this room. They might be in that stack. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, anyways. What you, there, she doesn't wear a little doily on her head. Thank you very well. This is like, okay, sometimes it's artwork. Yeah, yeah. It's always a full it's always a full cloak, right? Yeah. It's because that was the tradition, because it wasn't just a nice little thing that you pin on your head. It was to be seen as the cloak of your husband. Yeah, oh perfect. Thank you. It's part of her clothing, right? In a sense, it it's part of her whole clothing so that when you walk into a church, you don't see a head there exposed. You see simply the head of the husband. A monk in church, a man veils his head. St. Paul says a man should never veil his head. But monks veil their head because they have taken on a, on a, a, um, uh, a vow to become totally 100% married to Christ. That's their vocation. That's it. And so they enter into the monastery, and it is Christ and Christ alone they look at. They never turn around to the other, to the body, if you will. Right? They have become the body, and so they veil their heads. Okay? Whereas other priests don't do that. Except, well, sometimes they do. In the liturgy, they'll put on the hat, right? Or the bishop will put on his thing, which used to be a big veil. Okay? During certain times when he is approaching Jesus Christ, but when he turns to the body, to his head, when he turns to the body, he takes it off. Okay? Anyways. Alright, enough of that. And for women who have not found their earthly head. I truly want to veil, but I yeah. feel like, like I, when I went to the Holy Land, unmarried Jews do not veil their heads. Right. But, and, and that's yeah. where our teaching comes. Okay, so you had something related to that. Yeah, like if a woman doesn't have a marriage vocation, she doesn't have a religious vocation, yeah. say her vocation is to be single, what, what, um, and how do you, how do you understand all this? Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's, a, it's kind of the insight. Okay. Um, here's the thing. We are all called to the headship of Jesus Christ, to be the body of Christ on earth. 
Okay? That's it. There's different ways that that is manifested. One way is in marriage. Another way is in the celibate life. If you read the catechism, in the middle of their section on marriage, they talk about celibacy. Because only within marriage the celibacy is understood. Because celibacy is not celibacy in the sense that you are married to Jesus Christ. So if, if you have taken that vocation, and that's not so much what you're talking about, that you said, look, I'm going to live my life as a, as, a, as a nun or as a monk, right? Then full, fine, you fulfill that role. And that's why nuns veil their heads. They believe that they're married to Jesus Christ. And a single person is this very, in the sense that that's the, they feel that's the vocation in their life, they still have that calling of total union with Jesus Christ, whether they're in a convent in an order or not. Okay? So it's the same revelation. All of this can be applied in the same way. Christ becomes your head. It's just simply this, that for a married woman, that head has in some way been incarnated in the husband in her life. Okay? And, but but the same, the incarnation takes place in a, in a single woman's life in a similar way with the Eucharist or wherever in the presence of Christ. So there's different ways that that is fulfilled and uh, the veil thing. Well, I, you know, the, the, here's the thing. Women wearing church, the veil in church is a very nice tradition. Right? In fact, as you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, I don't want any argument on this. St. Paul says, this is for all the churches throughout the world. This isn't just for one local community. It's a local custom. And it's not a local in the time period because it was 2,000 years of tradition for the church. Okay? However, however, is it necessary? No. What is necessary is the fact that it is representing. Right? It represents a certain truth. This tradition, traditional practice. The truth is what is most important. The expression of that truth is also important and we're guided in the tradition. So... For the ladies in general out there, like for my wife, I said, look, I said, here's the tradition of the church. Why not? It's a great practice, and it should be continued. Fine. But she has a head. Fine. Okay, yes. She has an earthly head. Yes. Well, nuns, nuns have a heavenly head, right? Fine, yeah, I know. There is, there is okay. So I, I'm just saying, that, you know what, it's not necessary, Jennifer. What is necessary is the truth of it, that you're full submission, full submission to Jesus Christ, Right? Now, if you find the veil is helpful in entering into the church to help recall that for you and to better express that, then God bless you. And if it doesn't, then God bless you. What I'm concerned about is your submission to Jesus Christ as your head. Right? So that it's not Jennifer walking around anymore. It's Jesus walking around. Okay? Other questions? I was just going to ask why the church changed its rule that women should uh, have that. Well, I, you know, sometimes the church in her, in her wisdom at the same time, eh, maybe not so much wisdom, I don't know, makes decisions to say, look, first of all, what was going on in the 60s? Well, we're wearing hats. Does that really express it anymore? Well, it's a fine, yes, it's an okay thing to do, but is it really getting at the mystery? And I say, well, partially, but not in its full sense of what the tradition of that beautiful veil that the Virgin Mary would have, worn, would have gotten across to the Jews. And so at that point saying, well, look, maybe, you know, making it a law where, you know, some of you might remember where if you forgot your veil, what you had to put on your head? Thank you. Or a Kleenex, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it gets a little ridiculous, right? My wife forgets her veil. All right, honey. Well, find the deal. Come in. She borrow one from somebody if she doesn't. 
then she just, you know, I mean, that's not the point. The point is our submission to Christ. And, um, and that's the most important. So, so I'd say, better to ask, why did the church do that? Why did God allow it? And I say God allowed it because if that hadn't happened the last 40 years in the church, no matter what issue you're talking about, the preparation for the restoration would not be there and we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it today. And maybe most of us would still be just in ignorance because it's just what we do. Right? But now we're asking why and we want to learn to restore the tradition. So, Other questions? Perry? Okay, last one right here. Which was? Ask it again. It was a good question. It's a good question. It was, I mean, for for a man, the man's role is is dependent on Christ's role, and mm -hmm. Christ is always faithful. Yes. Um, yeah. With a woman, a woman is once removed from the one who's always faithful. Right. So, what happens when when the men in the women's life, or the, when the men in the church, fail to hold up to their responsibility? What then is the the woman's? Yeah. Role? Let me turn it around on you. What happens when the woman fails? Is the man supposed to still serve her? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. She is. Now, so I just bring that up because here's the problem. We always go, what if, what if? Because we're scared. What if? What if he fails, right? And yes, we're given an intellect for a reason, right? And so I'm not asking you to throw your intellect out the door, right? Now your husband's going to be your intellect and women are also to think. Not at all. Right? Because in the union of the marriage, now two, one, the marriage union, has the power and strength of two. Okay? But they must be united. <coughs> now, he fails. What do you do? First of all, you have an intellect to deal with it. If it's a are you supposed to follow your husband into the pit? I would say no. However, God has designed us in such a way that that's what most women do. Okay, it, men are the ones leading the pornography industry. Men are the ones leading the abortion industry, and the women are following because we're made a certain way. We're made for the good, and now the devil's twisted it and made use of that gift that God has given us and using it to our detriment. Okay. However, however, what do you deal with? First of all, you're given an intellect, and you've got a major crisis where you can clearly see is an offense against God, and your husband is doing it then you know what? He has failed in his vocation as your head. Okay? And a woman in that situation must either correct, which I, I, this, this definitely turns it around, but he has stepped out of his headship at that point, right? In the sense of a mortal sin. Okay? And she's got to step in there and deal with it because now the whole thing has changed. She has become the image of Christ in his life in some ways, right? In, as head in some funny kind of way. Um... However, maybe even in that situation, it would be better for my wife to go to my pastor and say, hey, you got to deal with my husband because he's doing this and this. But even the conversation must be there between the husband and wife too. Okay? But I see the biggest problem that I've seen anyways is the problem of the little things. That I'm driving down the road <laughs> and my wife says, no, but this and no, but that. Or, I don't even know. My wife is wonderful. <laughs> But it's, it's scenes in our life, it's not usually the huge things that are the problem, right? Especially if we married a good man and a man's married a good woman. It's not, the, it's not the, the big things. It's these little things. And the thing is that Jesus Christ promises to give the grace necessary to fulfill your function. Okay? And I, and I say to my wife, when these things happen, I say, stop taking my, cutting my legs out from under me. 
And what I really mean is, I need you to be my strength. I really feel this when, when we're all of a sudden these little issues divided. I feel like I'm the weakest need, uh, puny nothing. And it's because I'm totally dependent on her. And when she's not there as my support, then my ability to make the decisions she wants me to make are not possible. And so all of a sudden, it breaks down, right? And it breaks down. The break happens, and it causes the very thing we're trying to solve. So I say, you know, in little things, you know, maybe it's possible that as the vocation of the head, that you got to say, even though I can't see that clearly, you've been given the vocation to see. And the husband in return, although I think I could do that better, she may be given the vocation, that position, to, to accomplish that task as the hand of the body. You know what I see? Right? I always catch myself doing that with my wife. When I walk into a situation, she's doing something. The first thing I do is go, how can I do it better? This is how I want it done, right? And I gotta step back and I gotta say, no. Because she's been given the grace to function as the extension. And she's doing, and will continue the more we grow together, to do things as one. Right? And so I kind of cut her head off by doing that, if you will, you know? And especially those little things, it's the most destructive. And we gotta to start to say, no, that's the position that's the rule. Let, let me help them flourish in that. And I will be better off for it. Right? I will be able to function within the body of Christ better. Okay, any stones to throw? No? Alright. Thank you guys very much. Please, there's food back there and coffee, so please finish it off before you go. Let's finish in prayer. Yes. In the coffee, so the Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was the St. Paul, pray for us. 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 Pray for us